Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If you were to compare the person at work or at school or your family that you are afraid of so you cower or that you're afraid of so you start telling dirty jokes or you start camouflaging your Christianity with a life so people won't think you're a Christian, if you one day compare them to the living God that will be revealed, you will wonder why you ever feared them. God is worthy of our love and our praise. So much more worthy than we realize. We can lose that eternal perspective and get caught up in pleasing man and looking good for our friends. But the Bible tells us when it comes to suffering for righteousness sake, to fear God and not fear man, because God knows our heart. With 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, here's Robert Furrow. Father, we wanna thank you. We are blessed that we can know you and walk with you. We're blessed that we can open up our Bibles and study your word. And we believe that we are spoken to by your spirit. We wanna live for you. We wanna be directed by you. We want our lives to count. We want our lives to matter. We don't wanna be those that are alive and just stuff our fingers in our ears and our hands over our eyes and not see what's taking place in the world around us. We pray that you would speak to our hearts as we study this passage. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It has taken Peter all the way to chapter 3, verse 13, to get into his real intentions in writing this book. Up until this point, he's really been making a point that our Christian conduct must be right. And there is a reason that our Christian conduct must be right among the Gentiles. And that is because God is going to use our suffering to glorify God. They were entering into a time in church history where there would be a lot of suffering by a lot of Christians. But we're not just talking about suffering from persecution. We are talking about that and we'll make some applications for ourselves today. But we're talking about suffering in our lives in general that God would use whatever suffering you and I have, that he himself would be glorified through it, that he would be lifted up. I don't want to suffer for just suffering's sake. I don't want my suffering not to count for anything. If we're going to suffer, then I want God to use the suffering. People are to look at our lives. And if they see when we're blessed and we're living our lives and times are good and they see us living for Christ, that's one thing. And it's a good thing, by the way, but it's one thing. But if they see us when our lives take a turn for the worst, when difficult and hard times come, when things are really hard and we still live for Jesus, that's a completely other thing. That is something that tells them that your faith is genuine, that it is real. How many of us here have had somebody in our past that did not live for Christ the way they said they did? They were a Christian, they went to church, but they lived their lives in such a way that it even became a barrier for you at some point in your life. You didn't want to become a Christian because you didn't want to be like them. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. He's saying, let's live our lives in such a way that people would be drawn to Christ. And the last thing that we would be is a hindrance. We need to be like doctors who take an oath, first do no harm. Make sure we live our lives in such a way that people, first of all, would not be harmed from coming to Christ because we can live our lives in such a way that people would blaspheme God, even as David did when David sinned with the affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. 
God took the life of that child because David had caused people to blaspheme the name of the Lord. May God never allow us to put a stumbling block in front of people because of our conduct. May our conduct be holy and pure and honorable. May our reputations be good in the midst of this world so that when suffering does come our way, look at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Basically, as he introduces this section on suffering, he starts off by saying, if you're doing good, there's not going to be a lot of people out there that are going to want to do you harm. It's not that there's nobody out there that wants to do you harm, but one of the ways that you can avoid having harmed unto you is by doing good, is by living your life in such a way that someone who wants to persecute you would be put to shame. He says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer, see, it's not a fast rule. It would be great if it was, wouldn't it? If you do good, you will not suffer. Then all we would have to do is do good, but it wouldn't be good because you and I have trouble being good, right? And we would blow it and then we would think, oh, now I'm going to suffer. If I could just do good, I wouldn't suffer, but now I'm going to suffer. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you suffer for the sake of Christ and for righteousness, that you are blessed because of it? Every once in a while, somebody will come to me and say, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being persecuted at work. These people are, are treating me bad or they're, they're passing over me or they've gone to my boss and I'm being mistreated at work and it's awful because I'm a Christian. What should I do? Should I file a lawsuit? Should I go to the HR? Should I, should I tell on them? Should I turn them in? I say, you should rejoice because you are blessed. Now, in that moment, they don't see themselves as blessed. <laughs> they see themselves as anything but blessed. But didn't Jesus say, if you are persecuted for my sake, then happy are you. Blessed are you if they persecute you for my name's sake. And here, if you're doing good, you're going to work out suffering in your life because very few people out there will go after a good person. It's not that there's no one who will. It's that very few people will. And then if you do suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Don't be troubled by their threats. It's not that they might not be able to carry them out, but it's that you have someone that if you are afraid of them, there's someone that you ought to be far more afraid of. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the person who can kill the body, but be afraid of the person who can kill the body and the soul in hell. God is terrifying. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm not afraid of God. God's good. God's loving. He carries a little lamb around his neck. I've seen paintings. I'm not afraid of God. Well, one day you will be. Because when we see him as he is, we will see him in all of his terror, in all of his glory, in all of his righteousness. And if you were to compare the person at work or at school or your family that you are afraid of, so you cower, or that you're afraid of, so you start telling dirty jokes, or you start camouflaging your Christianity with a life so people won't think you're a Christian, if you one day compare them to the living God that will be revealed, you will wonder why you ever feared them or why you ever began to camouflage your Christianity with such stuff. Instead of just boldly coming out and saying, I am a Christian and I live for Christ. Because it is out of that direct confession that people are drawn to Christ and that they see Christ in us. 
It says, instead, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That set apart the Lord God in your hearts. The hearts is the very center of an individual. And sanctify God. When you and I are sanctified by God, we are set apart by God to become God's own special people. And here we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give an offense to anyone, a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be willing to give a defense. This tells you and me that we need to do our due diligence. We need to know the Bible. We need to know why we believe the Bible. We need to understand the defense for the faith. There's a lot of good information that is out there. I want to talk some about the defense of the faith today, but I also want to give you some opportunities for books you can read or you audio books you can download and listen to. Lee Strobel, who was a journalist, set out to disprove Jesus through journalism. He thought, I'm going to go interview people and I'm going to prove that Jesus isn't real and instead became a Christian by what he found he wrote a book called A Case for Christ and it's a powerful book. It's a great book because he reads it from the, the, he talks about the interviews he goes to, the experts that he went to, what he interviewed when he went to them. He went to people and talked to them about manuscript evidence. He went to people and talked to them about how the gospel spread in the early days and what history says about what happened. And it's powerful. A Case for Christ, A Case for Faith and A Case for Creation are three of Lee Strobel's books. You would do good to read them all. Get an iPod or put it on your iPhone. Listen to it while you drive or when you're at the gym or when you're, I don't know, sweeping out your garage. Whatever you're doing, redeem the time and do some studying. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell is an old standby, an old standard. Don Stewart wrote a book called The Ten Wonders of the Bible. It's a great book on the defense of the faith. Grant Jeffrey wrote a book called The Signature of God. And every chapter is great except for the Bible codes and you can skip that one. But all the other ones, really good. Do some due diligence. It's not my responsibility that you would know enough to be able to defend your faith. It's my responsibility to encourage you to do your due diligence so that you will do more than just going to church and sitting and listening to a message, but that you would be ready to defend your faith. Manuscript evidence is amazing. There's more manuscript evidence for the Bible, that by far, by the way, than for any other ancient book. There are 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. A manuscript is something that's written before the time of copiers, so handwritten. And there are 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. In other words, we have 24,000 manuscripts that we can compare to one another. Not only do we have 24,000 manuscripts that we can compare to one another to find out what the original was by seeing what they have in common, but we also have thousands of early church fathers quoting from their scriptures, some of which are the copies that we have, but many of those quotes are not from the copies that we have. In other words, we have hundreds of church fathers that quote from manuscripts that we no longer have. So we have a connection past the 24,000 manuscripts when we have the early church fathers who speak and write about theirs. We also have solid Old Testament manuscripts and we know they're solid. 
The argument in the early 1900s by the school of higher critics, which was a group of men that got together to study the scriptures and to say why they believed these weren't really from God and why God really didn't do miraculous things. They claimed that the Bible had been changed. That over the years, from the time that Jesus came, Christians got a hold of the Old Testament and began to add in these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And Jesus didn't really fulfill 350 prophecies, but instead he, the Christians changed it so that it looks like it. It looks miraculous to us today, they would say, because you read it and then you look back and you see that it says that, but we only have manuscripts of the Old Testament that are 500 years old. So there's all of those years, 2,000 years since Christ that Christians have been able to get in there and to change things and make it look like these were prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Until in 1947, 1947, a shepherd boy threw a rock in a cave and hit a pot that broke and he crawled up in the cave and found what would eventually be called cave number 11 out of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The first scroll to be found, tell me that this isn't God, was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. There was another scroll found in the same cave that was 75% of the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah had been highly maligned as one that had been changed by Christians over the years. And yet Isaiah 7, 14 was in that passage, in that book. Uh, Behold, I give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child. And Isaiah 9, 6 was in those manuscripts. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Before it was all said and done, every book of the Old Testament would be represented by the books found in the Dead Sea Scroll, except for the book of Esther. And I don't know why the book of Esther wasn't represented, but every other book in the Bible was. And many of them to a large degree. And we were able to compare manuscripts that were 1,500, even older, 17, 1,800 years older than the oldest manuscript that we had. And there were no major differences. There were spelling differences. There were minor differences, but there were no major differences. The text remained the same. The meaning of the text remained the same. You and I believe, not because we blindly believe, not because we put our fingers in our ears and cover our eyes and say, I don't want to believe, but we believe because God has given us prophecy that tells the future. And then he's given us the evidence that what we believe in is trustworthy. God said in, in Psalms, I will preserve my word from generation to generation. And God has done so and he's brought it to us. We also ought to be able to defend against evolution. And I realize that this is somewhat difficult because people don't want to talk about evolution. Here's what they want to talk about. Everybody knows smart people believe in evolution and dumb people don't. So which one are you? And so when I say to professors or people who want to argue with me about evolution, when I say to them, give me proof. Give me a evolution event with a species. Do you know that scientists believe that there have been billions of species on planet Earth? Billions. Out of billions of species on planet Earth, there's not evidence for one of them that it was a species that turned into another species. Not one, not in any of the fossil records. Oh, you don't understand, you Christians, you talk about the fossil records and you don't understand that, you know, like my scientist little accent, you don't understand that, <laughs> that, uh, that the fossil record doesn't speak of those things. 
Oh, it would if you had your proof in it. If you went back to the fossil record and it showed you an evolution event, you would say, oh, here's the proof. You'd gladly do it. But instead of saying what the proof is, they'll say, well, it's already been proven. Everybody knows that it's proven. Then they'll use something. One, one guy told me, well, natural selection, that's your proof. Natural selection. Natural selection is the ability to adapt to your environment. Yeah, then you have, you have little small changes that lead to a big change. All right, that's a great theory. I'm not saying you have to believe in God. If you want to look in the, at the world through the eyes of evolution, that's your choice. You can do it. But now take it from your theory to proof. Where is the animal that has changed by all of its small natural selection changes into another creature? Where is it that it has happened, that it has taken place? And evolution is a theory in crisis. And I'm glad that there are evolutionists, not Christians, but evolutionists. And by the way, they love to say that anybody who believes in evolution is not a true scientist. But there are thousands of Christians who are scientists. There's thousands of Christian scientists as well, but something completely different. There are thousands of Christians who are good scientists, who have made great achievements in their scientific areas, who believe in creation and who do not believe in evolution. And there are honest evolutionists who will tell you that evolution, as you have been taught it, is wrong. I'm not telling you that they've abandoned evolution. They're just telling you there's a problem with how they say evolution works because it can't work the way they said it and that what you were taught in 1973 or 1967 or whenever you were in high school or junior high and you had your little class on evolution and they showed you the four little pictures of a fish in the belly of its mommy and a human in the belly of its mommy and how they all looked the same and they all had gills. It's not true. There's a reason they were drawings and not pictures because it's not true. And the little, the little guys that were monkeys and then that stood up slowly until there was finally a man walking, right? You guys remember that poster? It's not true. That's not the way that they say today that humans evolved. That has changed completely. Do you think that they've said to anybody, oops, we were wrong? Science is in a constant state of flux. I always love when people get really emphatic about scientific things. They get really emphatic about black holes. They, they, they know exactly what they are and what's happening. You don't have a clue. We know less than a percent of what can be known about our universe. And we walk around like, well, I've got everything figured out because I'm so smart. We can defend our faith. We can know what we believe. We can do our research and we can do our due diligence and we can be ready to defend the hope that is in us. He says in verse 16, having a good conscience, that is we have sin out of our lives, that we would have a good conscience to live before God, that when they defame us as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed, that when they see your good conduct and they revile you and they come against you, that you by your good conduct would make them be ashamed. You don't file a lawsuit against the person at your work that is persecuting you as a Christian, but by your good conduct, they would be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than to do evil. Hey, it's better if it's the will of God to do good and suffer because God's gonna bless you than if you do evil and suffer because you deserve it, right? Verse 18, for Christ also suffered 
once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If Jesus suffered on the cross, the most righteous, perfect man who ever lived, the man who never did anything wrong, if he suffered so that mankind could be saved and we are a continuation of that ministry, then what makes us think that God won't use our suffering in order to bring people to Christ? We are continuing the work that he's doing. No wonder Paul said that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. He then says something shocking in verse 19, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now that's one of those verses that people circle and underline and go, what does that mean? Well, later on in 2 Peter, he brings them up again. And then in Jude, he says that there are demonic spirits that have been kept in chains since they did not keep their former place. There was a time when demonic spirits stepped out of line and God took those demonic spirits that stepped out of line and imprisoned them. It tells us that God does not let demonic spirits run amok, that God does not let them do whatever they want to do, but there are guidelines that they must follow until God finally puts away all of these demonic spirits. There are a lot of them. The Bible says that in Revelation, that there's a dragon that with his tail took a third of the stars with him. And he stands before the woman that has 12 stars under her feet. And the woman we know is Israel from a picture in the Old Testament. We know the woman is Israel and she's about to give birth to the son and the son is the Messiah. And the dragon wants to kill the son and he wants to kill the woman. And that is a picture of a battle that has taken place in the world since the very time that God told Abraham, through your seed, the nations are gonna be blessed. Maybe even before that, since the time God told Adam and Eve that the woman was going to have a seed and that seed was going to crush the head of the serpent and it was going to bruise his heel. I wonder if Cain killing Abel, remember it was after God received Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain, I think Satan went, ah, the seed of the woman who's going to crush my head. And I believe that he inspired Cain to kill Abel. I believe it was demonically inspired. You think it's so far-fetched that murders are demonically inspired? I believe that many murders, if not most, if not all murders, are demonically inspired. If one-third of the angels fell, and in, in Revelation it says that millions of ten millions are seen of angels before God. If you do the math for the number that is there in Revelation, it's over a hundred million angels. Johnny Cash in his song, When the Man Comes Around. You guys heard it? It's a great song. There's a man going around taking names, right? Jesus is that man. And he says in one line, a hundred million angels singing. I don't know if he got his math from Revelation, but it's, it's proper. His math is proper. And if a hundred million angels are singing, then how many is a third of what was original that fell? The demonic spirits. But we shouldn't be too upset because we know we win. We know the end of the book. We didn't write the ending in the book. God did, but we have it. We can read it. We know we win. In Jude, it says that they're kept in chains because they didn't keep their former place. And then 20 here, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. When were they disobedient? In the days of Noah. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.